And now, Manufacturing Matters, with your host, Cliff Waldman. Good day, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Manufacturing Matters. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm your host for this weekly show on Manufacturing Talk Radio, in which we explore all things manufacturing. In doing so, we certainly look at the major economic headlines, at the major political headlines. They matter a great deal for manufacturing performance. But we get much deeper. We have to with the manufacturing sector. We get deep in order to look at the rapid, complex, and fascinating structural changes that are reinventing goods production in the United States and around the world. The key here is new, new technologies, new processes, new products, new economic thinking. We're going to help you to understand how all of this is leading to a new manufacturing story. Every week I promise you that the guests are going to be the tops in their field. And every week I deliver on that promise, and this week is certainly no exception. Because I am proud to say that we have the leading thinker on manufacturing at the Federal Reserve. Bill Strauss is a senior economist and economic advisor in the Economic Research Department at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. He joined that department in 1982. His chief responsibilities include analyzing the current performance of both the Midwest economy and manufacturing sector for use in monetary policy. He organizes the bank's Economic Outlook Symposium and Automotive Outlook Symposium. In addition, he conducts industrial and manufacturing roundtables throughout the year. Mr. Strauss earned a B.A. in economics and geography from the State University of New York at Buffalo and an M.A. in economics from Northwestern University. He is a certified business economist, having earned that distinction from the National Association for Business Economics. He has a long career in teaching. He has taught as an adjunct faculty member at Loyola University Chicago and Webster University in Chicago. He currently teaches at DePaul University Kelstad Graduate School of Business and at the University of Chicago Graham School of Continuing Liberal and Professional Studies. At the latter institution, he was named winner of the 2010 Excellence in Teaching Award in the Business and Professional Programs. And I have to tell you, having gotten to know Bill and having heard him speak, that's not a surprise. He was recognized by the University at Buffalo as a distinguished alumni in 2012. Bill was named a fellow of the National Association for Business Economics in 2017. That is a recognition that NABE gives to the top people in our field. His research papers include analysis of the manufacturing sector, the automotive sector, the Midwest regional economy, the trade rate weighted dollar, business cycles, and Federal Reserve payment operations. He is about as influential an economist as you can get. He has been interviewed on numerous television and radio shows and quoted in the major business magazines and newspapers. 
He has also had great input into national policy. He has provided testimony concerning manufacturing issues to the United States Senate. Welcome, Bill, to the show. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you, Cliff. After a long introduction, I'm not sure how much time we have left, but I appreciate (laughs) the, the introduction. Thank you. You know, the past couple of months, we've seen some shaky data on manufacturing and industrial production as a whole. But I think with you on the show, rather than getting into the minutia of monthly or even quarterly data, I want to look at the broader issues because that's how you have to approach manufacturing thinking. Let's start with what we know about where we are. Amazingly, nearly 10 years since hitting a trough in June 2009, the U.S. manufacturing sector still has not achieved the technical output recovery from the Great Recession. We still haven't hit that December, that magical December 2007 point, which would signal that at least we technically recovered from the Great Recession. My question is, why? Why such a slow rebound for, ma- for manufacturing from the Great Recession? Well, I think it goes in line with the fact that the U.S. economy, while it is on the cusp of becoming the longest expansion in U.S. history, it has been certainly the weakest expansion that we have seen since the Great Depression. Uh, Real GDP has expanded uh, at a pace of about 2.3% since the middle of 2009, and that is, you know, barely above what the Fed, uh, at the most recent summary of economic projections, puts our trend growth around 1.8 to 2%. So we were just barely over that over the past nine and a half years. And quite frankly, it's not been a pace strong enough to really lift up manufacturing as compared to previous expansions. All right. Now, concomitant with this slow output growth in manufacturing has been unusually sluggish manufacturing productivity growth. But in fact, it's been unusually sluggish productivity growth for the economy as a whole. But let's let's focus on manufacturing productivity growth. What's your outlook for U.S. manufacturing productivity performance? Uh, do you see any meaningful improvement in this on the horizon? Well, I think I think that's actually um, – I am very optimistic on productivity as we move forward. And I would also say that probably my analysis of the most recent summary of economic projections suggests that the – the Fed is probably in general more optimistic with regard to productivity than we've witnessed over the past, uh, let's say, the first eight years of the expansion. Okay. Um, I think, uh, and, and, and I say that because uh, we're looking at a Fed forecast which has the unemployment rate remaining well below what is regarded as the natural rate, certainly all the way through the end of 2021, an unemployment rate that remains below 4%. Uh, and yet the Fed uh, is, is saying that the inflation rate remains pretty much solid at the 2% target that the Fed has. So when the unemployment rate is that low and the labor markets are that tight, one would begin to get concerned about wage pressures, which would lead to a wage cost spiral on inflation. But I think offsetting that is probably a, a view of productivity coming back somewhat. So I think we remain optimistic with regard to the improved productivity that we've witnessed over the past couple of years continuing as we move into the next several years. 
That is very good to hear, I have to tell you, because I've been in many discussions on productivity, and they've been on the pessimistic side, partially because it's been a head-scratcher. Nobody you know, has quite understood what has, has created this productivity malaise. If the Fed thinks we're you know, maybe going to somewhat get out of it, that's certainly, um, that is certainly good news for our listeners. Now, can, yeah, can yeah just, if, I can, if I can get back in terms of, of, of kind of my thought of what exactly led us into the malaise, um, right. I think it ultimately comes down to the fact that, um, you know, what drives productivity growth is, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of different factors that are often hard to kind of talk about what, influence each is having on ultimate productivity, but the main things we've talked about are, you know, having investment in the economy, having uh, uh, technologies that get developed, uh, human capital in terms of worker training and so forth. Um, So when you look at what happened in the post-financial crisis, we saw unemployment rates in the economy skyrocket up to 10%. 8.7 million people lost their jobs. Um, and in the aftermath of that, the very fact that the economy, as I mentioned earlier, was just growing moderately better than trend, the slower pace of growth was being able to be accomplished just by hiring workers. So firms, when they have a choice between capital investment versus labor, uh, opted for labor, especially since labor rates were uh, not rising very much. They were a real bargain, and in case we actually had uh, another downturn, uh, they could be able to shed those costs given our flexible labor markets. So there was a very heavy emphasis on substituting labor for capital over the course of the expansion. And it wasn't until maybe about four years ago or so that we began to hear ever increasingly that the uh, uh, level of the qualified workers were getting now tight enough that firms were beginning to uh, question their uh, inability of of finding those workers, and therefore they began to shift to investing more in capital. And pretty much beginning in in 2017, we began to see a capital investment cycle that continued all the way through the end of 2018. And I certainly remain optimistic to see that continue. Um, And in fact, we we saw a point in the capital investment where we had on, uh, you know, capital investment actually fell on a year-over-year basis in 2016. uh, And that really is unusual during an expansion to actually see your capital stock go down. But again, I think that that story is over and and capital investment is coming back. And when you look at year-over-year productivity growth, uh, currently we have a number that is just under 2%, which is well better than the one to one and a quarter percent that the Fed kind of thinks of as the long-term trend for productivity in the U.S. Good to hear. You know, your your discussion about uh, capital labor decision-making actually – Segues interestingly into my next question. The productivity concerns, as uh, you know, as has been discussed and expressed over past few years, have kind of fed into concerns about the global competitiveness of U.S. manufacturing. Now, that's a big word and probably an overused one. Competitiveness has a multiplicity of factors and moving parts. So, it's interesting. Given what you just said, I'm going to say let's start with technological competitiveness. You talked about capital investment, but I'm going to ask you sort of the next step question. In the current period of rapid process disruption in U.S. manufacturing, is U.S. manufacturing as fully invested 
in disruptive technology, invested in disruptive technologies as it needs to be for strength on the global stage? Well, that's a tough uh, one to call when you phrase it as needs to be. Um, you know, the things that I look at to generally discern whether we're doing as good a job as we have typically done, which has benefited us uh, given the fact of we've seen that as a share of our world production, it remains around this uh, 24% market share of world manufactured output. Um, I kind of look at the the R&D expenditure as a share of GDP. And with the most recent statistics that we have, and it's a couple years old because it tends to have quite a bit of a lag when they generate that, but it's still remaining at a fairly solid um, 2 to 3%, uh, 2.5 to 3%. Uh, and that's really not fallen off from, from the past. So, you know, I think that we are, in fact, uh, continuing to invest uh, in, in research and development to foster the new technologies uh, moving forward. Let's turn now. I mean, each one of these questions can be an entire show given the complexity oh, of, of change. But we, we, we want to cover things that uh, our readers are thinking about or asking about. So there is so much discussion about human capital in the manufacturing sector. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to that now. Turning to the human capital issue, let me ask you, is the manufacturing workforce in the domestic U.S. supportive of long-term domestic U.S. manufacturing growth? Do we have the human capital that we need for, for manufacture, U.S. manufacturing strength and competitiveness? Well, I think it's one of the one of the big issues that is out there that I get a little bit nervous about. But I'm also nervous about with regard to uh, the U.S. employee employee in general, uh, given as we are propelling ourselves ever increasingly to a knowledge based type of economy, uh, when you still have about a third of your U.S. workforce that uh, you know has no more than a high school education, you begin to get concerned about how effective they can be integrating into this knowledge-based economy. I know when you look at the manufacturing side, it's a very graying uh, workforce, and there is concern out there about whether or not uh, they are either getting the skilled employees that they need uh, or whether they're viewed as an attractive enough uh, sector to, to get those qualified individuals, and they're increasingly working on uh, making sure that they can get individuals and, and increasingly training from within to uh, build up that base. Now, whether it's going to be, you know, enough to get to where they need to be, um, you know, it, it, it's certainly something to be a little bit concerned about. Let me give you one example. Uh, it was about a year or two ago, about a year ago, where one of our, our manufacturers at our, at our roundtable discussed the fact that they had bought this uh, fairly sophisticated machine. And it was, in fact, uh, so sophisticated that they could not get one of their, uh, not a single one of their employees to be able to run it without crashing it. And every time the machine crashed, it was amounting to about twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 of loss. Uh, and it got to the point that they actually went back to the manufacturer and told them, we want to swap this machine out for a less sophisticated machine uh, because our employees can't seem to be able to work with it uh, in, a very, in a productive manner without crashing it. So, you know, here it's a matter that sometimes the technology can advance so fast that, it, you know, the workforce uh, can't even keep up with it. Let me push it a little. There has been much discussion here in Washington, 
of the fact that U.S. investment in apprenticeship programs has been weak relative to other OECD countries. Do you think that apprenticeship programs can effectively increase, let's say, the supply of needed skills in U.S. manufacturing? Is that a good investment for us to augment a bit? Well, I I think yes. I think I think it certainly could be. Um, uh, so, in other words, if we have some young individuals who are not uh, thinking to themselves that they want to go ahead and pursue a university college career, um, you know, there there should be some encouragements. Uh, you know, when I was younger, we had the shop classes in our high schools that kind of gave you some basic woodworking and metalworking skills. Uh, and if and if somebody who kind of got you know, maybe wasn't the best student, or maybe they were, but they really enjoyed uh, working with their hands and doing this. Kind of gave them an exposure to a potential opportunity uh, to have a career. Um, and so, you know, I know in Chicago we have several schools that are, are working with some of our uh, local manufacturers and trade associations to expose high school students to that. Um, I had an opportunity to visit Austria uh, probably about five years ago uh, to learn about their um, uh, apprenticeship program. And it was, a, it was a great. We had about a week over there, and we visited a number of manufacturers, um, and, uh, and, and we got kind of exposed to the process. Uh, where it's, it's very different. Where over there, a young person has to make a decision pretty early on, about you know, at the age of 16 or so, of uh, what track they want to go. And if they're not going to college, then they start on this apprenticeship track. That's, I don't know if we're in that position here in the United States where we want to make those kind of choices that early for some of our people. That being said, um, I was interested is this issue resolving uh, the problems in Europe with regard to skilled workers? And at each of the companies, and we visited about half a dozen manufacturers, and we would tour the factory, sit down with their senior leadership at the end, and I always made sure I asked the last question at the meeting, which was, um, with regard to this apprenticeship program, you know, are there any positions that you are having difficulty filling? And it was Everybody always said the same thing. Absolutely, we can't find the high-skilled worker. We can't find the engineer. And so and it's basically uh, when we had our, our concluding meeting with our host uh, from Austria, you know, I kind of made the observation that, you know, while I think these programs are very helpful, I'm not convinced that they would, that would solve the problems that the U.S. has, which are very similar, where we can't find the engineers and the high-skilled workers. Uh, so, I, so I think that these type of programs are helpful, but they are by far not an end-all solution uh, for the challenges that, uh, that the U.S. manufacturers have. Turning to another critical competitive factor, and one that the manu- I have, manufacturing executives have often talked to me about, the value of the dollar. The value of the dollar against currencies of major U.S. competitors has been a concern. Right now, and I'm, this this is a judgmental question: Is the dollar currently too high for the competitive health of U.S. manufacturing? Well, as you said, it's a judgment question, and it's a judgment question that somebody from the Federal Reserve does not get involved in. Um, those kind of decisions on the value of the dollar is left to the U.S. Treasury. That being said, um, you know, manufacturing was making a pretty 
significant gains initially coming out of the Great Recession uh, and was on stride to really get back to its previous output level um, until a few years ago, uh, the dollar value began to surge. And in large part, it was because of some issues that were taking place outside of the U.S., in particular, uh, some of the strife that was happening in the, in the Middle East. Uh, and so that, that stronger currency uh, made it much more challenging for our U.S. exporters to be able to sell goods to foreigners, as well as it allowed imported goods to come in at a lot, much lower uh, price point. And all of a sudden, the strong gains that we've been seeing in the manufacturing sector came to a halt for a couple of years. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's a challenging environment for manufacturers to operate in if you're trying to trade globally your products. And I think that has led a lot of people to reassess how they want to uh, do their business. And I think it's a push for really regionalization of production rather than having it, you know, where you're going to supply the world from one location. And I think when you look at what's been going on with a lot of the plants that have opened up in the U.S., for example, a lot of them are these foreign nameplates that are now producing in the U.S. And I think in part it's to be able to, uh, number one, keep their supply chains relatively lean uh, and, uh, and, and short. The other thing is that they avoid the currency risk. If you're producing in the country and selling in the country, uh, that risk, that currency risk, uh, to a large part, disappears. Hmm. We've been discussing the overall health of manufacturing. But as, as we all know, there can be significant differences in growth and competitiveness among major manufacturing subsectors. Let me ask you, which manufacturing subsectors currently show the most promise for leading the way, for leading overall U.S. manufacturing growth in the years to come? Well, that one is, again, a very, very difficult one to, with, with great confidence, you know, say uh, what's going to be the big thing in the future. Um, there's been certainly a lot of promises that have been made with regard to some of the new technologies coming in uh, with nanotechnology and, and perhaps having different types of, of, of coatings and surfaces on some of the processes that will make, for example, cutting tools last longer. And um, uh, you think about 3D printing and the ability of creating new designs that could, that could improve uh, uh, manufacturing. These are still, for the most part, still on the nascent stage of the industrial sector. On a, I think on a larger scale, um, I think we can think about some of the factors going into the automotive industry. And I mean, I think there's a reason why, you know, when you look at the R&D effort that's being put in place, people from all around the world, whether you are producing in the U.S. or not, have some kind of a facility, uh, research facility located in the, in the Detroit area where they're all trying to learn from each other uh, the best practices or, you know, keeping up with the competition on what they're developing with regard to the type of drivetrain for uh, the vehicles, with regard to the concept of autonomous type of technologies for vehicle driving, um, and then, of course, you get into the whole artificial intelligence. Uh, so I think those are, are, are very, you know, big items which, if uh, industry is able to take advantage of, uh, can really propel them into the, uh, uh, the next phase of, of, uh, of, of, of manufacturing and, and development of products. Bill Strauss, you gave us your time. You gave us your expertise. 
Thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely, Cliff. It's been a pleasure. Folks, as you can see, we've answered some questions, but we've raised quite a few new questions, a lot for us to explore on this show. In the coming weeks, we're going to continue our look at specific industry sectors by having a discussion on the plastics industry. And then shortly after that, I'm going to have a show which will bring our listeners up to date on the increasingly interesting and intriguing area of additive manufacturing, of 3D printing. Until then, this is Cliff Wallman reminding you that manufacturing matters, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.